Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, the podcast that may or may not be able to reach you in your dreams. My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the Studio Ghibli film The Wind Rises. Directed by Hayao Miyazaki, the film premiered in July 2013 and is the studio's 20th feature film. The film is an adaptation of Miyazaki's manga of the same name, which in turn is an adaptation of the Japanese novel The Wind Has Risen by Tatsuo Hori, being a fictionalized biography of Japanese engineer Jiro Horikoshi. The story follows Horikoshi through his childhood, student days, and adult life working at Mitsubishi as an aircraft engineer, focusing on his personal life with his wife, Nahako, and his dreams of creating beautiful airplanes. The film was a commercial success, grossing $136 million on a $30 million budget, with critics praising the visuals, music, and emotional narrative. The film was also met with controversy, both from Japanese and Western critics, with those in Japan deriding the film's message about the futility of war as anti-Japanese, and with those from the West for idealizing Horikoshi and not focusing enough on the Zero Fighter and its role in World War II. And, as always, there will be spoilers. So, this is my first time watching this film, and I remember hearing a little bit about it when it first came out, because this was supposedly Miyazaki's last film that he was ever going to direct. And so I knew that there was some hype around it, but I never really got to going around to watching this film, even when it came out in theaters, even 10 years later at this point. Uh, So this was my first time watching it. I think just at that moment, 2013, I was coming off of the Studio Ghibli bandwagon. I think I was a little disappointed with the Secret Life of Arietti. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll pass by it a little bit. Which, which, to be fair, was not directed by Miyazaki. He produced it. That's, anyway. That's true. Uh, but still, like, Studio Ghibli, it's like one person makes a mistake in the brand name, then you just like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> but that was me uh, in 2013. So, yeah, I never really had motivation to watch this film. But I do remember that there was some discourse about it when it first came out, uh, that it was not about a fantasy world that Miyazaki created for this film, Uh, but it was based off of somebody from real life, somebody who made World War II planes, and that's all I really knew about this film. And so coming into this film, I was pretty pretty much like a blank slate on what I expected from this film. I didn't really expect too much except to be thrown into another magical world by Miyazaki. And, I don't know, I have thoughts about this film. Uh, some Somewhat of a mixed bag of opinions for this film. Because I do think that there is amazing art in this film. Um, some of the music and the visuals are the best, I think. Or among the best of what we've seen from Studio Ghibli. Uh, as well as some of like the tone um, in the movie as well. Certain directions in the audio of certain scenes and how scenes are, are portrayed are really good. 
But I'm also conflicted, as many people are, about this sort of idealization of uh, flight without really considering the implications of that, especially focusing on uh, Horikoshi, who was, like I mentioned in the intro, the creator or the mind behind um, the Japanese Zero Fighter, who uh, I had to do some research on this because I wanted to know a little bit more about the controversy behind this film. But the Japanese Zero Fighter was like one of the uh, best uh, planes that the uh, Japanese Imperial Army used in World War II. On Wikipedia, it says it had a um, kill ratio of 12 to 1, so extremely deadly. Um, And it was used in kamikaze operations as well. It was one of the planes that were primarily used for it. And of course, none of this is mentioned in the film itself. Um, Instead, we are shown, like I said, an idealized biographic of this man's life, which on one hand, is also not exactly true to his life. Um, I mentioned the novel The Wind Has Risen uh, being Miyazaki's inspiration, and from that novel, Miyazaki pulls like the wife with tuberculosis, um, the hotel, all of those like idealistic lives. Uh, that didn't happen with um, Horikoshi's real life. Um, Other things were changed, like Horikoshi did not have a little sister, he actually only had an elder brother. And so I do think a lot of liberties were taken for the narrative purpose of uh, audiences wanting to connect with Horikoshi. But I do have to wonder, like, what are we missing from that um not to stand on like a soapbox or anything but there are things that we there are implications of this film from this like idealized narrative that Miyazaki has created that I don't quite agree with I wish it was handled a little bit more tactfully maybe more of a focus on um Horikoshi's like anti-war sentiment because that was a thing that was really well documented in uh, in his journals, in his personal diaries. But we don't see too much of that in the film. Instead, we focus mostly on the beauty of flight, something that Miyazaki has been known for, something that he likes to portray in a lot of his other films. But the mention of airplanes being transformed into war machines is just that. It's just mentioned. We we do see some moments of it when uh, we see like the bombs being dropped. But other than that, it's like a very triumphant film about Horikoshi's drive to create like the perfect aircraft without the effects of that aircraft being used in World War II. So yeah, I am a bit conflicted about this film. Um, But I've been rambling on for a little bit. What do you all think about this film? And what were your first impressions of um, Hayao Miyazaki's, well, almost, most uh, latest uh, film that he made? Yeah, so I brought this to the podcast. uh, Like you, Alex, this is the first time I've seen this. In fact, this is the first time that I've brought up Miyazaki film that I haven't seen since I have seen the rest of them. Um, 
and I was very curious on as to uh, what this film was about. I had heard a couple things, uh, not much, but I had heard. Um, well, let me get to that later. So I think that let me start with this. I think that as you said before, the just as starting out, the movie does a great job of using audio to really uh, uh, express emotion. And also, it knows a lot about how, when to not use audio. The mm. This film has a long, long sections where there is no music at all. And it really, it feels, to me at least, it really adds to the vibe during those scenes. Notably, the ones I'm thinking about are the earthquake scene pretty early on. There is no music through that entire thing. And so it feels almost like it's less tense, but even more stressful, if that, if that, uh, if that makes any sense. It's, it's very interesting. I think it was a very interesting choice. It's also interesting, um, all of the, um, uh, I guess, like, Foley, um, or, like, sound, a lot of the sound effects. Of yeah, this, yeah. Sound human Oh, my made. God, yeah, I was going to talk um, about that. Especially the earthquake. Yes, like, the earthquake sounds like, like someone is, like, literally swallowing up the earth. Um, and it's, I think it's fascinating that that choice was made. Um, I, I think it's really cool. And like, I just, I think it's excellent. I think that as a, or I mean, maybe this, this won't be the case, I guess, but you know, this was purported to be Miyazaki's last film for at least the past, like seven years or seven years after this, he only recently said he's doing one more, one more, you know, he's Miyazaki. He always does one. more. <laughs> um, but I think that as a last film, this film for me stands as a very strong finisher. And I want to briefly talk about what you were talking about, Alex, with this sort of conflicting message about, I, um, I, uh, romanticizing perhaps, um, the man and his effects of, the Horikoshi, right? I think that what this film does is it is a it is a subtle take on his anti-war sentiment. Because you're right, the amount of I guess well, okay, maybe this maybe I should say it like this. I think that for me at least, I read this film as being very anti-war mainly because the outcome of this film is legitimately tragic. It's not triumphant. Like when in those last few scenes where we see the effects that his planes have, we see the bombs. Yes, it is kind of, it's not like uh, portrayed as horrific, but it's portrayed with this like somber light music that I think is intentionally, uh, not satirical, but absurd. And I think that in addition to it, the addition of his tuberculosis wife. Um, <laughs> his tuberculosis wife? <laughs> well, I mean, that's basically her character. Right? Um, <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. Um, well, that's all we're going to refer to her for the rest of this. <laughs> oh, God. Um, right? The, the, the final ending of her dying um, and him having this kind of like premonition at the end of him realizing that he basically made a choice, right? This whole time he's been like, oh, we need to spend more time together, but 
more and more his work pulled him away from living. And that is like kind of the message of the film, right? You need to live. Um, and so I think that in effect, what it does is it makes this film a very beautiful anti-war film. Um, it's not direct. It's not non-subtle. I think that it like intentionally is obfuscated to bring out the beauty underlying the horror that is his creations, because there is beauty in flights and there is beauty in his machines. It's just that their purpose is the thing that has been twisted. Like one thing that always was very poignant to me somewhere in the middle of this film is you know, he's giving his, he's talking to a bunch of the other designers at Mitsubishi and he's going over his designs and whatever. And he's like, oh yeah. And so this thing is going to be weighted for like this many pounds. And it's a little too heavy though, but you know, um, the one thing we could get rid of is, is the guns. Right. And everyone laughs, but his boss is like, he almost got it. Right. The, the thing that he almost got was like, yes, this plane would be better without the guns. And I think that's a beautiful way to highlight this message in in subtext, basically. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is that I think that this movie is excellent in the in a way in the ways that it tries to do things very differently than either he Miyazaki normally does or just in in general things are normally done. Like the time structure of this film is very out there there are these very like abrupt changes in the timeline or not timeline but when things are happening and to me what that invokes it almost invokes like a recalling of memory from the future that these events are occurring right they're not like interlaced between each other they kind of just happen after each other um and i think that in that way it is retrospective in its story structure that I think it adds a lot to the message as well that this is something to be recalled like at his like deathbed or even something like that right um so basically what I'm trying to say is I think that there is I think that this is a work of art and uh I think that I need to watch this film again basically that is a much stronger sentiment than I'm gonna be coming to this with uh so I'm going to walk us back for a minute here because there's sort of two different conversations happening here. There's the conversation about the film on its artistic merits, you know, the stylization, the way it told its story, uh, the, the, the plot devices, the narrative, the, the cinematographic, the soundtrack, artistic approach. And then there is the discussion about the controversy of the film, right? There's the discussion about whether it actually is anti-war or not. And it's interesting uh, what you said earlier, Alex, that there were critics on both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, there were critics who, you know, in Japan who thought that it was, uh, I mean, what was the word you used? Demonizing? No, so, or... Yeah, I mean, I was about to talk about this too, but uh, it's, it is interesting that uh, the Japanese critics thought it was very anti-war, very anti-Japanese, and the Western critics thought it was not there wasn't enough of an anti-war statement not a lot of focus on the zero fighters and their role in world war ii so yeah yeah i mean ab absolutely fascinating and here's my overall thing that i want to say first 
ultimately, we are not equipped on this podcast to judge the morality of the life of this man. Because that's, that's sort of what this conversation is veering into, right? I mean, just because this man, right, you know, um, Horikoshi, like, he was on record very frequently for, you know, being, like, pretty anti-war. And yet built airplanes for the military for, like, basically his whole career. There is nuance in his life. There is nuance in this film. I don't think that we can pass judgment on the man himself, right? The actual person whose life this film is based on. I think what we can do is talk about the choice to tell this story. And, you know, ultimately, I think the controversy kind of comes down to whether or not you accept the central premise of this film. You know, it's this the line that um, Caproni says to you know, young Horikoshi in their shared dream, you know, is that, you know, an airplane is not a tool for war. It is not a tool for making money. An airplane is a beautiful dream. Engineers make dreams into reality. And I I think the crux of like talking about flight is really important here to sort of understand where this comes from, because it's so far outside of Miyazaki's wheelhouse or his, his more typical fair right mostly he is known for stories of fantasy of you know young people growing into adulthood of uh you know trying to find the right thing to do in a world where you know the the right thing is impossible to achieve or impossible to find right i mean it's it's this is so so different from what he normally does and i do think that a lot of it, it you know his fascination for this person comes from the fascination of flight and the fascination of finding this sort of engineered, uh, sublime quality, you know, of, of aeronautical engineering. And yeah, I mean, it really, I think I, I kind of said my main thesis about this film is like, you know, whether or not you think it achieves what it does, uh, depends on whether or not you agree that the, the use of the airplane is divorced from the process of, or the beauty, you know, the the ideal of what an airplane represents in, you know, in Horikoshi's mind or in Miyazaki's mind, right? This idea of freedom, this idea of, you know, escaping the earthly tether. And again, we can't really judge the man, so we have to just you know, ask that question for ourselves. And I don't think that there is a single solid answer to it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right when you say that we can't judge uh, Horikoshi. We don't know him. You you said yourself there's a lot of nuance, um, especially when it comes to people making things for war. I mean, what were the circumstances of his life that led up to it? Um, so I, I think, yeah, we won't talk about Horikoshi uh, and what we think about his personal life. Um, but I do think we should talk a little bit about uh, Miyazaki and the way that he created the story. Um, because it does, like you said, give us a glimpse on what he values and what he focused on. That main thing being flight. Yeah. And, you know, to, to pull back a moment and just share my thoughts about the film, I think the film itself is very beautiful. Uh, I think they, there's a, there's a, a particular 
odd quality to a lot of uh, Ghibli's work, a lot of Miyazaki's work, of, of how he presents scenes that I think became more obvious to me when I was watching what was intended to be, uh, you know, like, believably real. Uh, in that sometimes scenes just kind of skip to the end. You know, you'll 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 see them, you'll see two characters walk into a place and then, you know, begin a conversation and then suddenly they're leaving. Um you know, and there's a there's a particular sort of, you know, not a desire to stick with one scene to its, you know, fullest extent, uh, trusting that the audience will draw in the the gaps of what is not explicitly shown on screen. Uh, that's not, you know, unique to this movie at all. Again, that's very Ghibli, very, very typical of their films. But, you know, I, I think my overall take is like... We hold Ghibli's name in the highest regard, right? I hold Ghibli's name in the highest regard. I mean, uh, if you if you have seen other Ghibli films, if you have liked other Ghibli films, the artistry of this film, it meets all of those expectations, those very, very high expectations. I love that you uh, highlighted the earthquake scene, Michael, because that was my, like, kind of artistic high point for me as well. The, just the, the deeply metaphorical depiction of something so stark and violent um we'll talk about that in a minute but yeah the artistry of this film is unimpeachable which i think uh it, it, it from some perspectives it's not fair to ghibli that they can make a movie this highly high quality construction and people you know end up talking about the subject matter to the exclusion of all else but when you're Ghibli, people expect that from you. So, you know, 10 out of 10 as far as the uh, the animation and the sound, uh, the music and the sound design and so forth. All right. Um, this was also my first time watching this film today, um, as it is the case for all Ghibli movies, I suppose. <laughs> but um, this one really got me thinking. And Michael, I'm... Very glad that you brought it because I I had no context on what this movie was about. Didn't know it was about World War II or the guy who built the planes or even about planes or even about real life. I didn't know anything about this film. And when I watched it, it uh, it almost struck me. Obviously, you know, I can't talk too much about Oppenheimer, but it struck me as very similarly structured to Oppenheimer. And for anybody who's watched that, yeah. um, you, you will probably immediately be drawn to the comparison of how it starts with, you know, with this guy's youth and Oppenheimer, not necessarily in his childhood, but it starts with both of their youths and just kind of bookmark, bookmark certain, you know, events in their past that end up influencing the people that they become in the future. And the way that, you know, both Nolan and Miyazaki construct that narrative and have, you know, certain events in their life and certain people they meet and certain decisions they make uh, come back and, you know, influence their outlook on things, especially because both of them were heavily involved in, you know, wartime construction where both of them were pretty anti-war and yet they created some of the most destructive and, you know, terrible machines uh, that the war, that the world had ever seen. And I, there, I think, you know, obviously, Iris, you're right. We can't talk about the man. Uh, we can't judge the man, rather. Um, you know, because we didn't know him and we didn't know his motives, but we can certainly talk about the circumstances that, uh, you know, allow us to kind of look back on the movies, you know, 
main kind of plot points and say, well, you know, of course we can criticize it because the Japanese have very traditionally been, you know, painted themselves as the victim of World War II, even though they, you know, did some truly terrible things uh, during the course of the war. So there is certainly, you know, I think it's certainly warranted to, to talk about that because uh, I don't have anything against the Japanese people, but it's certainly something that, you know, the Germans don't do. And it's definitely influences the way that we look back at um, uh, certain, you know, Japanese inventors and, you know, big names in the wartime who did some pretty, like, you know, caused a lot of people to die. You know, that's not something that can be ignored. Um, but again, uh, in regards to the movie, uh, I think that one thing that we haven't really touched on is that a lot of people consider this to be a parallel to Miyazaki's own life. Um, uh, he's been gone, he's gone on record and said that in, in a lot of ways, in comparison to how he portrays, um, Jiro in this movie about him chasing a dream and sacrificing the people that he loves and, uh, the, you know, being able to spend time with his loved ones is very similar to how his family kind of hates him. Like, you know, he, he's regarded to be a, a genius creator, but a terrible father by his children because he never had enough time to, uh, you know, spend with them and give them the attention that most children need from their parents. And I think that's so sad. I think that's incredibly tragic. And in the same way, Michael, you had mentioned that this, or I think it was either Michael or Alex who mentioned that this movie ends very tragically. I, you know, that's obviously, you know, you could see that as a, as a kind of like, you know, anti-war message. But I think it also just comes through as like, Miyazaki is kind of coming to peace with his own failure as a, as a parent and as like, you know, a loved one to his children. Like, he, he, you know, set everything in his mind to, to follow his dream and make movies. And he made some of the most iconic movies of the last couple decades. But, he has his regrets. And I think that there's some, like, it hit me on an emotional level that I was not expecting. Uh, even for, you know, the other Ghibli movies that we've watched, the other Miyazaki movies that we've watched, where, you know, I came into it not expecting to be as emotionally invested in it, but ended up being, you know, very kind of like struck by it. This one hit me on like a whole nother level. And I think it's, it's a, an incredibly thought provoking movie. I, I am, I really, really love what this movie is bringing to us, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I, you know, I hope that we do have a good conversation about it because, and, and I think it is worth talking about everything about it, the artistry, the music. Uh, shout out Joe Hisaishi. He comes back on oh the soundtrack. God, yeah. <laughs> love that, <laughs> man. Comes back hard. As, so, as soon as the, the Italian, you know, like theme came on in the first, you know, <laughs> dream, when he, when he meets uh, uh, Capoli or whatever his name is. Caproni. Caproni for the first time in his dream. Holy shit. I was like, oh, Oh man, Barca Rosa, bring me back. But like, we should be talking about everything this movie has to offer because it really is, it, it takes so much and it puts it into a, a portrayal of which is not even like a real story. It's just a, a, an amalgamation of a manga that he uh, you know a, a manga that he made and also like a real life historical biography. I just think it's genius. I like I've never seen anything like that ex executed to this way. And Iris, you're right. You know, this is a standard that we hold Ghibli to. But I think they, they really did kind of blow it out of the park. When we talk about, you know, where this ranks on the Ghibli tier list, of course, we'll talk about what we think about it compared to the other movies. But this one really, really struck me. Really struck me. I'm so glad we, you brought it to this, uh, to this episode, Michael. Can you clarify what you said about Miyazaki comparing himself to Horikoshi? 
Like, did he actually say that he saw, like, parallels t- between his life and Horikoshi's? No, I think, I, I, from what I could tell, and this this is, you know, Wikipedia skimming, right? I, I don't have any citations <laughs> for this. But um, what I can tell, it's more the effect of what other people thought of him. Uh, in the same way that, you know, we today can, com- you know, com- we can criticize uh, Horikoshi for creating these engines of war, even though he was truly trying to follow his dream to design aircraft. Uh, you know, the people that uh, Miyazaki was close to criticized him for following his dream and, you know, leaving other things behind. I think uh, in, in the context of the movie specifically, it's ambiguous as to whether or not uh, we believe that his wife, you know, resented him in any way for, aban- you know, not necessarily abandoning her, but not giving her the attention uh, I think this movie in particular portrays it in a much more positive light of like, we only have this much amount of time. We have to spend as much of it as we can together. But the message is still clear. Uh, he sacrificed her to do his job and to follow his dream. And in many ways, Miyazaki believes the same thing can be applied to himself. Yeah, that that's a take I hadn't really thought about. That, yeah, but... that, is, that, is, that is certainly a take. Well, yeah, I mean, I can I can see the connections because Miyazaki has been criticized for being like a bit of a jerk to not only the people he works with but uh, his family. But yeah, that's that's something that I hadn't really thought about. That I can see the parallel. Um, Real quick, uh, here's a quote from his son, um, Miyazaki. Miyazaki, his son, um, said that he tried to be a good father, but in the end. Uh, sorry, Miyazaki himself said this. Um, he tried to be a good father, but in the end, he wasn't a very good parent. And then his son later said in 2006 that Miyazaki gets zero marks as a father, but full marks as a director of animated films. So that is a real thing yeah. that they did say. Thanks for the context. All right. Well, Michael, since you brought this film to us, it's only right that you get to start us off with your favorite moments and your favorite characters. Yes, so mine will uh, consume a topic that we will talk about later, but now we're going to talk about it now. All right. Because my favorite moment is the ending. Um, and also, my favorite my favorite character is Caproni. Um, <laughs> all right, let's start with Caproni. Um, I think that, because I, I don't actually know if he's a real person. I think he was. He was. Yes, he was. Um, yeah, he, he was like a legit uh, aeronautical engineer. Um uh, for stuff like that. I don't know ex- exactly his history and stuff like that. Um, I don't, I haven't done the research, but he was a real person. Um, and, uh, I think that his, uh, his, uh, his role in the film is really interesting as this kind of like dream character. Cause I mean, we do, <laughs> we do see one moment, which I think is technically like real of him next to the giant plane and it crashing. And he's like, destroy the tapes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was real. I, mean, I think again, there's so much ambiguity in this film, um, but I love how this man. Uh, well, first of all, his introduction is really, really good. Um, him effectively like coming to uh, Horikoshi in a dream, but it's less of him coming to him as a dream. It's kind of like them being like, "Wait, we're in the same dream." That kind of realization is interesting, um, and. Uh, Caproni's kind of outlook on on flight, which we have already stated, um, for me is really interesting to see 
uh, and it's it's very important that we get his words on it um, in the ending. And so let's talk about the ending because I actually agree with Marcus's take. I was going to bring that up, which is I think a lot of people see this film, and the, this is part of the reason why I thought it would it would have been an excellent final Miyazaki film, um, because. At least for me, this is like, I don't know, this is my headcanon. I don't, I don't know, whatever. Headcanon of a real person. Um, but it almost feels like the movie is like screaming to himself, Miyazaki, to live. And that is, again, the, the whole thing at the ending is his wife being like, I've waited here for so long. You gotta live, Horikoshi. You gotta live. And then Caproni just repeats it back. You have to live. Let's go get some wine at my house. And that's literally the ending of the film. Um, and I think that it is a beautiful culmination of everything that has led up to this moment, both in the film and through Miyazaki's entire filmography. Um, because I think that that notion has been carried forward throughout all of his films and has led to this point. The idea of uh life and beauty and like the rejection of like uh mechanistic ideals and uh like anti-natural things like it all kind of wraps itself in this kind of metaphorical message of like being able to witness and experience life as it is and how the creation of this kind of art while either being planes or films is both in a way to achieve that goal but also not something to be taken solely as living and that it is the combination of arts and living that is like the true like end goal of humanity and i just kind of spound some nonsense right there <laughs> yeah. but i think that for me like that is this it that is this feeling and experience that i get from this ending which i think is a perfect way that would have sent off miyazaki's filmography in this way so that's my spiel on that i'll go um i think i'll start with my favorite scene and i think i might cheat and take like three kinds of the same scene um <laughs> i swear if you steal all the dream scenes marcus it's, be it's so not mad. all the dream scenes uh all of the scenes that i'm talking about are every every scene and i guess the short aftermath of the scenes where the test flights happen so there's the first one where his boss is the one who's designed the plane and he oversees it and that fails and then he does one um and that one fails and then his last one of course is the one that succeeds and i think each one of them is uh Painted in a very, you know, obviously the losses are meant to be somber moments, but uh, I think that the the first scene where you know we're kind of we're we're kind of you know driven to hate his boss. He's kind of just like an annoying little short asshole, um, and uh, but I think that him in the rain, kind of picking through the wreckage of the plane, and you know, uh, you know, Hiroki Jiro when he's um you know, being young and naive and just hired, he's like, okay, well, we can, you know, I have ideas for how to build the next one. And he's like, there isn't going to be a next one. This was the last chance that we could get the Navy to, you know, accept our model. They're going to go with someone else. And I think that 
that was a very sobering moment for both of them because they, you know, it starts to make Jiro think about how, like, Japan, you know, 10, 20 years behind. We still have oxen pulling our planes. Like, we're kind of working from a position of, like, we don't really even have a shot to begin with. So we have to make something that's, you know, going to be futuristic, going to be even better than what we can put out now. Uh, and the second the second scene kind of follows along that. Like, we don't actually get the reveal that it failed until a little bit later, like five or ten minutes later in the movie. And I thought that was another cool decision as to why, like, this is, uh, like, we were convinced that, you know, he's kind of like the genius. He can put together this plane and it's going to work. And then it ends up not working and he has to go back to the drawing board and think about, uh, again, you know, putting together a more lightweight frame with the, with the metal and stuff and all that. Uh, I guess technically the real favorite scene come, is the last one because the flight is a success, but he feels the wind rustle and he and just a slow pan, almost like 270 degrees to the left where he's just looking back. And it, I think the intention was it's kind of like the signification that he knows that his wife is either di- going to die or has died. Yeah. Um, yep. Because he, he, he feels it immediately. Like... It, it, it hit, and again, I'm going to compare this to Oppenheimer. It hit me the exact same way as when the bomb, the test bomb first goes off. Spoilers, I guess, for Oppenheimer. Um, <laughs> when, when the bomb first goes off, first goes off and there's no sound. You just see the explosion and he knows it worked. Um, but there's, it's, there's just incredible, it's just sadness. It just really is sadness. It was not a victory that he wanted. You know, he literally achieved his dream to make the, you know, the best fighter plane that there was. He made a plane that was, you know, going to be the one that won and he couldn't think about it. And I, again, it just hit me on a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, the scene itself is not that special and, uh, doesn't have any, you know, you know, blaring music or anything that enhances it in any way. It just, uh it's just a really good decision i guess directorial decision to do it that way um favorite character um let's see i guess i'll go with um what's his name honcho the uh his uh his classmate who he graduates with Mm -hmm. sorry um he's kind of like he's a very supportive guy but there's a lot of interesting differences that they make between Jiro and Honsho that, you know, kind of showcase the way that the war is going. He's kind of like a foil as to, like, you know, when Jiro is told to go back to Japan after visiting Germany, Honsho stays in Germany. And, like, uh, he he's assigned to kind of work on the plane, you know, kind of copy the metal frame that they saw from the Junker. Um, and uh, there were just a lot of, you know, otherwise he's a ride-or-die guy, uh, really cool, you know, really just great character, kind of like a brother to him. Uh, and it was cool to see that, but uh, again, a little bit more nuanced than I was expecting uh, with his characterization, and I liked it. Look at those flush rivets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he was all uh, he metal was... construction. <laughs> no, Full metal guy. construction. Ah! <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'll talk a little bit more about the dream sequences um, of this film because those were my favorite scenes. Um, whenever Caproni and Jiro would meet in their shared dream experience, I think then we could really see Miyazaki's and, by extension, Jiro and Caproni's love for flight in its, like, purest form. Because there we see 
two engineers building planes for their own pleasure, for the joy of flight, and for people who would be able to go as passengers. And these fantastical dream sequences, um, I can't really pinpoint one a single one of them, but all of them have that typical Miyazaki flair to them. Uh, I'm thinking like your house moving castle, bright colors, attention to details, Porcarosos, like the little shaking of uh, the plane wings, how they bend, the sound they make, all of those like bright, vibrant sensory images in the dreams are heavily juxtaposed to the planes in the real world. I'm thinking of the scene when they go to Germany to take a look at their bomber. Um, And that plane is, while they say it's an amazing feat of engineering, it's not the same as the planes that Jiro was dreaming of. Um, Obviously, it can't be it's a warplane it's a bomber Jiro himself mentions like oh we could fit so many passengers in the wings if we took out the bombs and I think there and those in the juxtaposition of those two concepts of the dream that Jiro has versus the reality he's working with there I think we can see that anti-war sentiment uh at its best Uh, While it's not outright stated, like you said, Michael, this is a film that works in subtleties. And there, I feel like the subtle message is the most powerful. And going back to the test scene with the Zero Fighter, the one that would eventually be the one to bring, uh, bring him his beautiful dream to life. Even then, it's not exactly the same as the planes of his and Caproni's dreams. And yeah, I just love the way that Miyazaki was able to to express that idea in a, a method that wasn't explicitly stated, one that you you would get, totally get, just by watching the film, watching the visuals and the attention to detail. Um... Favorite character? I don't know. It's kind of hard to pick a favorite character because this is so much about Jiro and about his own life that many of the other characters are like side characters in and of themselves. But I will shout out the the fey creature masquerading as a German man in that that hotel. Um, That... I think, uh, I don't know his name. Um, Let me look it up. Uh, His name is Hans Kastorp. Yes, Hans Kastorp. Um, I don't know. I think he was very much, um, he harkened back to Miyazaki's older films. I feel like he, if you put him directly into Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle, he would fit perfectly in there. Just because he has all those, like, 
eccentric mannerisms that many of his other characters do, like eating a whole bowl of watercress or whatever it was. It literally just yeah. leaves. <laughs> also, it's like I imagined him in spirited away, but not as like a creature. He's just a human in there. He's so he's weird enough yeah, yeah. to be a visitor. It's to the like those memes about meeting Bill Murray on a spaceship with aliens on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, I do like his presence in the film just because of how weird he is, but also because he acts as the sort of um, the explicit side of this anti-war sentiment that uh, Miyazaki is pushing. Um, Like he talks about how um, the flight director in Germany, I think his name was Hugo Junkers or whatever, um, like going against Hitler and uh, Germany and Nazism. Uh, and he's like escaped that uh, to come to Japan. He's like, this is a nice country. Um, it's very peaceful here. But yeah, I just like him just because of how weird and eccentric he is. Um, but also for that message that he brings to uh, Jiro. And again, he, he seems like that character in many fables, many parables that comes to guide our hero uh, at the very end. Uh, whether or not Jiro, I mean, Jiro was not persuaded to not build uh, the airplanes for the Japanese military, but he adds an extra bit of, an extra layer to the story and the themes that it's it's pushing. But yeah, that's my favorite character. Yeah, um, I'll follow up by also talking about the dream sequences because those were, I think, my favorite moments. For me, what I'm, what I got from them, they are the most idealized or the most pure or the most distilled moments of this. God, I'm not sure if I agree with calling it an anti-war sentiment. You know, in many ways, it's kind of like a... It's a, in some ways, it feels like not that it is uh, running a counter to the idea of war, but saying that, you know, when war happens, one must persevere anyway. That's what it feels like it is to me. Like, a, a, the sentiment is persevering. You know, that even when one's dream is taken and twisted in ways that, you know, you don't recognize, much less want, you still have to do the work anyway. Which... You know, you still have to pursue the dream anyway, which is just so, so fraught. It is so complicated in a setting like someone working on machines of war. But what I love about the dreams is that those sequences make that sentiment feel real in a way. Like, I think we would be missing the the sympathetic nature of what Horikoshi so desperately wanted without those dreams, right? We, we, we need to be reminded what he sees when he is seeing these fighter planes flying about. We need to be reminded of the, the beauty that exists for him because it doesn't necessarily easily and instantly translate to us in the audience you know this this um glorification of the plane as a a tool of freedom as a as a a 
you know, an instrument of, of the dream. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is a film that I'm going to be thinking about and turning over in my head for a long time. You know, one day is not enough time to really fully kind of come to a conclusion about it. But I think for me, those dream sequences are kind of what anchors one half of that debate. Uh, as for my favorite character, I have much the same complaint as you. You know, it is based on this man's true life. Uh, and a lot of these characters kind of feel like sort of they're they're there to advance our main character's story and it's an interesting opinion to have about someone whose you know kind of major identifiable flaw or fault is the fact that he didn't commit himself to other people that he neglected the people who loved him in order to pursue this dream very single-mindedly you know and it, there is a question to be asked about, you know, does the fact that none of the other characters in his life's story, a fictionalized version, to be sure, but the fact that none of the other characters in his life story feel like important parts of that story, is that an indictment of the way the story was written or an indictment of the man himself? We can't possibly know that for the umpteenth time. We were not there. We are not part of his life. We don't know. We can't make that judgment. But I think it's interesting. And for the sake of participating in the uh, this framing device that we use, I kind of want to say his boss, actually. Partially just because I thought the man was funny to watch he does um, kind of he does kind of have like a redemption at the end with the marriage yeah and i also just i i think narratively the the sort of contrast he provides to horikoshi's career right this um kind of diminutive but very sort of overwrought and overbearing and overworked poor guy you know the 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 ways that he failed in comparison to horikoshi's success you know there's something kind of ineffably complex about how that acts as a foil to Horikoshi's own, you know, success with the eventual success with the zero. And, you know, it feels weird to say that a character is a good addition when like, this is literally the like, key was part of the dude's life is, you know, presumably based on a real person. But I do think that it is uh, an important part of how the story is told. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if he was part of this, uh, part of Horikoshi's real life, because who knows how much liberty uh, Miyazaki took when recreating this fictional bio- biography. I mean, we talked about how a significant portion, his wife, didn't actually, that that wasn't his real wife in in real life. But I do think that the liberties that were taken for narrative purposes um, can be forgiven for the the emotional narrative of this film i mean it was really the film is really kind of like a a mashup in you know whatever proportion you want to ascribe to it but a mashup between right the actual life of horikoshi and the novel which you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. yeah the wind rises i mean because that's where the wife with tuberculosis comes from yeah exactly right uh all right well why don't we bookend this conversation by talking about the things that we always talk about with Studio Ghibli films and that of course is the music and the animation of this film because we mentioned it a little bit earlier uh but 
I do want to, again, focus on the animation of the flight of this film. Because in a movie of all about planes and the ramifications of flight in humanity, quote-unquote, um, Miyazaki, again, pays especially close detail to the the mechanisms of flight. And I think the, the planes we see in the dream sequences that they have are very reminiscent of the older Miyazaki films, like... Um, uh, not I was I wasn't gonna say Princess Mononoke, uh, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, like those airships that we see at the very beginning, uh, and the uh, I think you were mentioning the uh, triplanes, Iris, or the 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 it was it was a it was a hexaplane and a hexa, then a nonaplane. Hexaplane. Yeah, <laughs> there was there was a, there was a plane. <laughs> yeah, and we again see that rejoicing of flight in uh, those dream sequences, but we also see them in the real-life sequences as well. So I wanted to get your uh, thoughts and opinions on how this film uh, measured up to Miyazaki's kind of like legacy of representing flight in his other films. How do you think it uh, it stacks up in the grand scheme of these Ghibli films? Yeah, I think this might be the most detailed it's been. Um, and I think that with one exception and that exception being part of the dream sequence. And I just really want to quickly talk about that. So in the second to last dream sequence, when he's having these kind of closing thoughts uh, with um, the guy Caproni uh, Caproni. Thank you. Um, Count like, <laughs> yeah, um, he, they both conjure this image of like the, the pure plane. And it's like, it's like pure white and it is, you know, it's just fuselage and wing. There's like no cockpit, there's no guns. And I think that in that way, it having zero detail is what allowed that bit of animation to be perfectly expressible for what they were talking about. It's, it's like, it's, they, they conjured the essence of plane. Um, (laughs) And I think that is a really good use of knowing when not to get too detailed. Um, That being said, back when they're in the reality land, um, yeah, like the way that they are showing these planes is incredibly detailed. Um, And also the, uh, there was this one moment early on in the film um, where he pulls out the slide rule and the, like the, the, the specific motions of the slide rule Mm. were so detailed that, it honestly looked rotoscoped. Um, it was so good. Um, for those of you who don't know, slide rule is that thing that like comes out in the middle. Um, that and is it's, such like, a used for... description of slide rule. <laughs> the thing no, that no, comes say, out I, I, in the middle? I'm saying to, to for those who've watched the film, it's the thing where the middle part comes out and it's used for mathematical calculations, right? Um, anyway, so like it's it's a it's a it's the the first time that you see it in the film when he just sits down to his desk for the first time. It's so detailed. The exact tick markings that you see on that slide rule are represented in the frame. Um, and it's gorgeous. Um, I don't really have much more to say other than I think it's a fantastic. I'm going to I'm going to highlight two particular scenes. The first one is you remember that scene where he's talking to Hanjo with the the plane that Hanjo's built and there they like 
without any hands, like parts of the plane kind of like come apart yeah. a little bit, or like you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like little like uh, like metal plates kind of come off, like to to show the internal. Like I thought that was really cool. Yeah, the I thought part, that, I, like the schematics. Yeah, the schematics. Right. right yeah. Really, and, I mean, that I really actually loved is a little detail. Like, yeah, just, I thought just that kind was of just neat. give you yeah. give, like let you see through Horikoshi's eyes. Right. Right. And he highlights each individual thing about how the the, the flush rivets are gonna you know reduce the drag and stuff and the spring the, the spring loaded uh, thing uh, as well. And then the other one is um, when they when he and uh, his wife before they before they you know kind of get married uh, and they're throwing the paper plane around. I thought that was so cute. I thought that was so adorable. Uh, but beyond that, I thought it was just. The way that the paper airplane is animated to fly and do these mm-hmm. weird things and stuff, it's different every single time. Uh, you know, uh, Hirokoshi is always kind of like, you know, having to be on his feet and like try and catch it, fall into bushes and stuff. And she's just laughing up from the, the, uh, the balcony. But I don't know that the, the way that the, it's the same, the same kind of sentiment as how Michael described the, the plane in the dream. It's, it is the base essence of plane i guess and uh seeing that just kind of that's where the dream came from you know like that's what that's what really sells the dream and iris you're absolutely right about your earlier point which is like the dreams are incredibly necessary to make that connection to tell you that the dream is what is driving you know uh hirokoshi and not you know uh you know desire to make money or you know profit off the war or anything like that like i thought that that was the 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 essence again the essence of the plane the essence of dream uh you know pure at its most you know distilled level and i thought that was really cool i guess the only, the other thing that i'll point out is that you know we we've talked about the way that the airships in nausicaa were almost very alien like they did look you know they were metal and riveted but their designs were very kind of organic in that way uh, or designed to mimic more kind of like a like a whale, like a space whale or some shit than yeah, anything living, else. Almost. Yeah, right, right. And, and then the, uh, the the wings of the flying machines in Howl's Moving Castle. Yep. Right. That's a little it. tiny personal aircraft mimics a dragonfly. Right, right. Uh, and then, like, it's cool how in Porco Rosso, it's definitely more towards the realistic side, but there's still aspects of that, um, you know, that. Uh, the 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 whimsy i guess of uh of ghibli's injection there and this one it's it's almost like aside from just the paper airplane in that dream sequence the planes are all very much you know heavily focusing on the engineering like this is no longer there's there's no longer any comparison to the organic or to the the whimsy i guess that we've seen in the other miyazaki films like it's it's metal it's wood it's canvas it's paper it's whatever the fuck went into it uh, and it, you know, I also really liked how they show them falling apart or when they're flying, when they're get, when they get destroyed, like it's very intentional what part of the plane fails and cascades into the entire wing getting ripped off and then both wings getting ripped off or in the case of, uh, Caproni's, um, like airship, the way that it folds in on itself because the weight of the center mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. one that's dragging it down and it folds the, the wings up, you know, like that. So I don't know. As an engineer, I get a little bit more <laughs> more out of that, I suppose. That's what it, that's what gets you going, huh? The, the average viewer, right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> Y'all have ever seen RC planes taking too many Gs? You know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> those things are crazy. Yeah, for me, the the, uh, 
animation moment I want to highlight is the earthquake, which we talked about briefly um, in reference to the sound design. But visually, it's just beautiful as well. And I think it, it hits so suddenly that I didn't really realize what was happening at first, which, of course, I assume is intentional. That's how earthquakes happen in real life. But the the choice to have this sort of this breathing sound and this swallowing sound be accompanied by at first the quick ripple and then an almost sort of like rubber hose animation style, like the entire track literally doing a cartoony sort of waving motion like someone picked up and fluttered a long rug was fascinating in this this very... I'll say very flavorful mixture of like, like Looney Tunes, but also like real and devastating, you know, uh, this depiction of destruction happening, not in the way that real things break, right? That's not how an earthquake actually looks, you know, the entire freaking railroad track, like jumping up and down, like it's, you know, like party streamers, but at the same time, it's interspersed with these shots of, you know, the, the uh, like the shockwave from a distance and the way that the um, the rocks of the train line are, are rumbling and shaking. It's just like, and it was beautifully done in such high detail. Uh, I think it, it really was just a, a very eclectic way to show that. You know, it almost felt like I was watching a metaphor rather than a, a literal depiction of an earthquake. I had a I had a stupid thought when I was watching that film. Oh, sorry that that scene, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is now this is making me want to love flying because now I'm not on the ground." <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember I, I one time was having like a stupid conversation with a friend, and uh, you know they asked how would being in an airplane help you against an earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> And it turned out they didn't think about the fact that, in, like, the airplane would be in motion at the time. Like, they thought it was someone was talking about being in an airplane on the ground. <laughs> totally unrelated. <laughs> Can I also bring up, sorry, one last thing before we end. And I just wanted to make sure that everyone got this connection because it's very important. Because it's something that I forgot to talk about with the ending. Which is, y'all did see that the the, the, the dying plane, the dying pilots that were going up into the sky. Yeah, I mean uh, Porco Rosso. Sort of, yeah, that's yeah. that's a Porco Rosso. Yeah. Re- not like, I think it's 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 not even like a Porco Rosso reference. It is that is Miyazaki's portrayal of death, right? And like, mm-hmm. I think that it's 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 beautiful how that kind of got all the way the, around. The so. Miyazaki verse, if you will. Oh <laughs> and I also just think you know, on one final point about the animation, this is the one and only Miyazaki film I've ever seen to not have a moment to focus on food. Yeah, I mean. The the only thing uh, that, there's mackerel there's yeah, mackerel. The only thing he talks about is the ribs mm. of the mackerel. Yeah, no, but, and that's not that's not like a focus on like the cuisine, right? The gourmet aspect of what, it. That is a focus on what, look what, at this curve I see in nature, and I also see this curve on wings. Math is beautiful. What about Castor just the, the, scarfing the down leaves were, were animated <laughs> to such perfection? There there is no doubt in my mind that he was literally eating a bowl of. It, leaves. it looked like he was eating like like. Uh, uh, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. I'm sorry. (laughs) This was not a salad. (laughs) Let's just establish. Yeah, it was. He just picked it up from the garden himself. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. This week's video you can watch on YouTube is called Soar by Alice Tzu.
so very thematic. Go check that out. And next week, we will be talking about Elemental. So go check that out. And please email us at bestseatpodcast at gmail.com if you have a show suggestion or just want to tell us about your own favorite moments and characters. Thank you to Ben from the Real Beast Podcast for our intro and outro theme. And once again, thank you so much for listening. And you will hear from us next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.